0: Mark chapter 1 in verse 9 there we read at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan as Jesus was coming up out of the water he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven saying you are my son whom I love with you I am well pleased At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended to him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And we read in Ezekiel chapter 18, beginning in verse 29. You can find these on the blue insert in in your bulletin. The house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you, each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all your offenses, then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all offenses you have committed, and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live.
1: We had a chance to look at Matthew chapter 9, and we looked at the mission, and what, what mission we are set on, what mission Christ came and started And what mission every single person who professes Christ as Lord and Savior is called into as well. And we saw that we are drawn in by the gospel and then we're sent back out with the gospel. We're drawn in uh, by God's grace through his son Jesus Christ. And we're sent out by his grace in Christ to share the message with those in our mission field. Our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors. To share with them. To evangelize. To bring the good news as well. Now... The question is, today, that we want to look at is, what, what is that message? And, you know, if you've been raised in the church and you've uh, known Christ for many years, you say, well, that's an easy answer. But given the message that comes out of the church today, and given the number of um, messages I hear from Christians, I would say it's not so easily uh, perceived or understood or communicated today. I think a lot of us are sharing a message that's not of Christ. And so today what I'd like to look at, just two things... Um, one, what the non-gospel messages are, and then two, what is this message that Christ gives us? Because the message that Christ brings us is one that deals with three problems that we have. We have a problem with time, we have a problem with truth, and we have a problem with trust. And the gospel comes, and he brings us, listen, I I have an answer to all three of your problems, and they're real answers, and it's an eternal answer. And so by God's grace, we will have ears to hear today, not just to hear, but to hear, to understand, and then communicate it as well to others. So let's briefly, and I do want to do this briefly... ...let's just look at what the non-gospel messages are. When, in, when Paul was writing to his servant and his spiritual son, Timothy... ...in 2 Timothy, he, he warns me, he said, listen, Timothy... ...he said, a time will come when they, believers, will no longer endure sound doctrine. He said, but wanting to have their ears tickled... ...they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires... ...and these so-called believers will turn their ears away from the truth... ...and they will turn aside to myth. Now, he was saying that time is coming. And we've seen that throughout all of human history. But without a doubt, if that prophecy has been fulfilled... ...it is being fulfilled in our time... ...when people, believers, those who profess Christ... ...had and understood a gospel message... ...are no longer adhering to it. They've turned aside from truth. They've turned aside from scripture. And they've now gathered leaders for themselves teachers and preachers of false gospels, and they then follow them. Nothing new, but certainly something we're seeing within the community of professed believers today, more so than we have in centuries. And every single message appeals to our sin nature rather than the glory of God through Christ. Every single one. Every false message gravitates toward self-glorification, self-centeredness. So I wanted to just hit three today. There are several, but these are three that actually moved me early. I didn't come to a saving grace until I was 20. And these are ones that I heard. uh, And some of are prevalent today, even within mainline Christianity. The first gospel message is the one I have here in your handout. The gospel of universal love. And it goes something like this. Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, I heard that before I came to a saving grace. Someone, uh, well-intentioned or well-intentioned believers would come up and say, listen, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, someone who did not believe in God or even know who this Christ person was, i got to tell you how ridiculous that statement is because I didn't believe that Jesus Christ was real. So someone was saying to me, this person that you do not believe is real loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. It would be the equivalent of that person saying, hey, guess what? Santa Claus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. My response would be, that's great. What does the tooth fairy think of me? Because, you know, the last few teeth that I lost, I didn't get any cash. So I'm wondering whether or not the Tooth Fairy is upset with me. I didn't believe in Jesus. And therefore saying that he loves me had no impact. But even when I would have those moments of reflection, thinking maybe he's real, I would think, well, of course he loves me. Why wouldn't he love me? Right? I mean, why wouldn't he love me? If he is real and if he is the Son of God and if he created all that is seen and unseen, of course he'd love me because what? I'm a pretty nice guy. I haven't killed anybody. You know, I haven't blown up any buildings and I haven't stolen from my employer. Yet, right? Not yet. So I haven't done those things. Therefore, of course he's going to love me. Message given, professing believers to a non-believer, no impact. Why? It's not the gospel message. It's not the gospel message. And it fell on deaf ears, as it should have. So the gospel, the false gospel of universal love is one that we, I still hear today. Another one, the gospel of success, which we used to call the health and wealth, that's been repackaged and now sold to an entirely new generation. Same idea, though. And if there's one book and one author that has set the standard for this, it's Joel Osteen in his book, Your Best Life Now, Seven Steps to Living at Your Full Potential. Hmm. I'm going to be good here. I will, I promise. I promise. I did. I prayed that God would not have me be inappropriate in this. I want to teach and I want to preach. So listen, Jesus Christianity prayer church in this presentation is a life plan. It's a life plan and on how you get to the place you want to be. If you want to get married, if you want to be rich, if you want to be powerful, it's how to get there. It's how to get all the things that you want. It's not the gospel of Christ. And it certainly isn't a gospel of repentance and belief. It is a health and wealth gospel, and it's been redesigned so that an entirely new generation has bought into it. By the millions, in essence, it goes something like this. Have faith. doesn't matter what the faith is in. doesn't matter what the faith is like. Just have faith. And if you have faith, then life will go better. And think positively. Have positive thinking process, and then your life will go better. Larry King who is not a believer, does not profess Christ, was interviewing Joel Osteen. Now, a non-believer asked him a fantastic question. Larry King said to him, Why is it that you never talk about hell or sin? A non-believer asked him this question. This is his response. Quote, I choose to focus on the goodness of God rather than sin. I try to teach biblical principles in a simple way, emphasizing the power of love and a positive attitude. In other words it goes something like this: having troubles at work, have faith and your troubles will go away. Struggling in your relationship with your with your husband or your wife or your children, think positive thoughts and things will get better. Feeling purposeless, go to church, engage in ministry, do something positive and you will begin to fulfill your full potential. That's not the gospel message. It doesn't come close. Christ never uttered such nonsense. And yet millions of people who profess Christ and Christianity fall into this category. Now, last one before we get into Mark chapter 1. The most subtle today that I see and the one that's made its greatest impact into Christian conservative circles is the gospel of morality. Now listen. Listen closely, church. This is a biggie because mainline Christian denominations have sacrificed a crucified Christ, a crucified Savior, for moral living, for being good, for behaving ourselves. And I would go so far as to say many Christians in America would be satisfied if the culture stopped using drugs, stopped drinking, stopped aborting babies, and stopped watching pornography. If we did that, if we were nicer to each other and kinder to one another, and we started meeting the needs of the poor and taking care of those who are sick, and we became a really good culture then Christians would be satisfied. That's not the gospel message either. Let me ask you this question. If Satan had San Jose all to himself, no common grace of any kind, no providential grace, by Satan had San Jose all to himself, what do you think San Jose would look like? What do you think? I asked a couple people this question. The answers were good and intriguing. Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse, over 50 years ago, asked the same question in a weekly sermon on CBS radio. CBS radio, gospel message. Amazing how times have changed. Barnhouse said, if Satan took over Philadelphia, that's the city in which he preached. He said all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes sir and no ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. But Christ would not be preached. That's how it would look. It would be good and nice and clean and tidy and no Christ. There's a great difference between being good and the gospel of grace. In fact, religious moralism... Is something that we latch on to to bring righteousness to ourselves and indeed try to save ourselves. And the the, the problem is we say, okay, we don't need a savior. We're good enough. We're clean enough. We're right enough. We have right behavior. I mean, look at us. Look how we treat each other. We don't need Christ. We don't need a savior. C.S. Lewis said, we must not suppose that if we succeed in making everyone nice, we should have saved their souls. Listen. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turning away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world. The gospel of grace, according to Jesus Christ, is not, be good, behave yourself. The gospel of grace, according to Jesus Christ, is not, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And the gospel of grace, according to Jesus Christ, is not, have a little faith, go to church, try something, seven best ways to live your full potential. It's not that at all. Christ never uttered these things, and he certainly doesn't send us out to utter these things. Now, Solomon made it point very clear. None of this is new, right? We've seen these false teachings and these false gospels for centuries. But what is new today is the number of professing Christians in the church who testify to these false gospels. And I would go one step further. The number of professing Christians in the church who do not know the true gospel of grace of Jesus Christ. How can we share a message we ourselves do not know? How can you? How can you share with the lost the gospel of grace if you think the gospel of grace is Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? So what is it? What's the message? Point number two. I told you it wouldn't take too long on that. Was I okay? That I didn't, I didn't lose it, right? That I Okay, okay, thank you. <laughs> Good affirmation. <laughs> the gospel message of our Lord. What is it? What did Jesus go out with? What was the message that he taught? fundamentally, the gospel message is about reconciliation. Remember, he said, I came to seek and save that which was lost, to make right what was broken, to uh, reform and bring back that which was destroyed. And so it's about reconciling relationship between God and man. And then from that reconciled relationship between God and man, man and man, and man and creation. It's fundamentally about reconciling. So we get to Mark 1. Our Lord's message, your message, my message as a harvest worker. Mark 1, chapter 9, uh, verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open. Listen to this. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels attended to him. Verse 14, listen closely. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. What did he proclaim? The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This verse, this passage, Jesus Christ. So he's he goes out and he's baptized by John, and we have the miraculous uh, revelation of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descends on him like a dove, and and the people hear God, the Father, speaking in an audible voice. This is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. And after his baptism, he's taken out for 40 days and in the desert, he's tempted by Satan himself. And after the temptation, he comes out and he then goes into Galilee and he begins to proclaim the gospel. He takes the message as a missionary to the lost. He begins engaging in the seeking and saving of that which was lost. And he takes to them a message of hope. He takes to them a message to deal with the three problems we have. Time, truth... ...and trust. How so? I mean, how do, we, how do we as fallen men and fallen women struggle with time, truth, and trust? Let me show you. First thing he does, he says, you got a problem, fallen man, with time issues. You don't understand what's taking place here. And so he says in verse, verse 15, he says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Now, we skip right over this, and we go to repentance and belief. But this is imperative. And there's a reason he said this first. The time has come, the kingdom of heaven is near. As a people living in the longest standing constitutional republic in the history of the world, we have trouble with kingdom terminology. But in order to be someone who understands the gospel fully and testify to the least and the last and the lost well, we must understand kingdom terminology and we must communicate it to others. Kingdom terminology. Christ is saying the time has come. Literally, it says it's fulfilled. Now's the time when he was here. And then he says, the kingdom of God is near, literally at hand. And what he's revealing, is saying, listen, I am, I am the Messiah that has been prophesied to in your sacred scriptures. But not just that. I'm not just the Messiah. I am a king and I'm coming to establish my kingdom. I'm going to establish my kingdom here on earth. The prophecies we talked about this morning are extraordinary. They're incredible in detail. But essentially what he's saying is there's a new king and there's a new kingdom that's coming to town. I'm the king. It's my father's kingdom and we're going to reign. Now, kingdom terminology. You don't have kings that share kingdoms. Kings are sovereign. It is all theirs. So when he says, I am the king and I'm coming and the kingdom is coming... And we're going to establish our reign here on earth, it means we're not going to share it with anybody, not any other king, not any other prince. And the good news is this the good news is that God's kingdom is coming to destroy the current king. You say, well, who is that? I didn't know there was a current king. I thought we had a president and Congress. Who is the current king? It is Satan himself. What is the kingdom? It's a kingdom of darkness. And the good news is, Christ says, "I've come. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and I've come to destroy Satan, to destroy sin, to destroy death, and to establish my kingdom forever and ever." Amen. Are you still with me? You're saying kingdom stuff. Listen, kingdom and kings imperative in our message. The good news is that He's come to strike a fatal blow against sin and death, and Satan, and the dominion of darkness. And that means that instead of sin destroying God's good creation, which is doing now, the king and the kingdom have come to destroy sin, to restore, to bring back what was lost, what was destroyed. Now, for the Jews... This was not strange terminology. Kingdom for us, yes. For them, no. They fully expected. The prophets had said, listen, a king's going to come in the line of David, and he's going to sit on the throne. And when he comes, some fantastic stuff's going to happen. The dead are going to be raised. The living the dead will be judged. The enemy will be destroyed. And Jerusalem, Israel, will once again be enthroned to its rightful, holy, and honoring status. And so they expected this. And so Jesus and the apostles, they take the same language and they teach it to us today. But it's from an eternal standpoint rather than a physical standpoint. Jesus Christ did not come to overthrow Rome. He didn't call an army together and then train them to go and overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ and his kingdom came and is coming to destroy a much greater enemy. And that is Satan himself. And that is the dominions of darkness. He came in in order to overrule the current kingdom that is in place. Now when you hear that, you go, oh, so it's a history lesson. It's a timeline. Satan is king, dominion of darkness kingdom, Christ comes. It is. I mean, he is stating historical fact. That's true. When he came, he said the kingdom of heaven is near. It's at hand. This is what's taking place. But it's a warning. Way more than it is an historical note. It's a warning. And what he's saying is this. Listen, we have trouble with time issues. We don't see where we are in the timeline of human history. He's saying, the time is now. The king has come. There's going to be a transfer of power. So he's saying, listen up, people. You will be a citizen of one of two kingdoms. If you are a citizen of the kingdom of Satan, then when that kingdom is destroyed, you'll be destroyed as well. If you're following a king who is on his way out, then you'll be on your way out as well. And it's a fantastic warning. He's saying there's a transition of power taking place. And if you do not listen, you too will be destroyed. We don't listen well, though. We don't evaluate time well. I mean, many, many people in this valley have suffered huge financial crisis because of how we dealt with our mortgages and not just here in this valley, but throughout our country. For how many years did we see people buying homes they could not afford, and lenders lending mortgages they shouldn't have been lending? High risk, zero down. I mean, zero down on a five hundred thousand dollar house or a three quarters million dollar house, really? And we did this for three or four years, and all the experts saying wow, it's bad, it's bad, it's going to burst, it's going to burst. And we kept thinking it'll never burst. And it did. And the mortgage market fell out, and people's homes were being foreclosed at a record rate, and the federal government had to step in. Why? Because we weren't listening. It was a warning. We weren't aware of the time that we were in. And so Christ comes here and he says, listen, in your spiritual complacency, you're asleep. He's saying the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near right now. We foolishly think, myself included, that everything's just going to continue on as it is. I mean, we're all going to wake up tomorrow morning, and we're all just going to go to work, and it's going to be another week at work. And Friday will come, and then Saturday, and we'll be back here on Sunday listening to you preach, and we'll do it, and it just keeps on going. That there isn't dynamic change. But even as we sit here right now, there's radical dynamic change taking place. The times are changing radically. Jesus said in John chapter 12, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world, Satan, will be driven out. Kingdom transfer. Change in power. And Paul declares in 2 Corinthians 6, I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. He's saying, now the kingdom is coming. Satan's on his way out. And now is the time to be saved. Don't wait. Don't wait another day. Recognize the time. Recognize it. So the first problem that our king deals with is our time issue, our time problem. And he says, the king of heaven's at hand. And it's an imperative part of the message because most people think, yeah, I got plenty of time. I don't believe in Christ. I don't believe in God. I got plenty of time. I'm young. Witness to see young people. They think, well, we all did, that we were going to live forever, right? And then you turn 40 and you realize, wow, I'm not. I'll be lucky to live over 10 years. This perception of time, Christ brings into an eternal perspective. And he said, it's now. It's now. The world is being judged now. Today of sal- the day of salvation is now. The prince of darkness is on his way out now. I'm the new king. First part, second part of the message. He deals with our truth problem. Look at verse 15 again. Mark chapter 1 verse 15. Jesus said, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent. You go, oh yeah, here we go. Here we go. Repent. Like, I'm going to say that to a non-believer. Repent. I don't even know what that word means. Repent. It's a churchy word. I mean, it is, right? You hear it, you hear it in churches, but not so much anymore, unfortunately. And you don't even hear a lot of evangelists using the word repent. Repent. What does it mean? Metanoia. In the Greek. Change of mind. Change of heart. Change of direction. Biblically. Real simple. Turning away from sin and to God. Turning away from darkness and to light. Turning away from your allegiance to a falling king, Satan. And turning your allegiance to the rising king, Christ himself. Turning. Repentance. Repentance. It is the right response to the revelation that the kingdom of heaven is near. It is the right response to the time is now. It's the right response. Why? Well, think about it for a minute. If we are sinful and we're in darkness, and there's a new king and a new kingdom and a new power then the wise, intelligent response say, that kingdom's on its way out. I don't want to be attached to that. Who's this new king? Where's this new kingdom? Who am I to turn to? Repentance is the rational, intelligent, wise response to the kingdom of heaven being near and at hand. Repentance is realizing fundamentally that you are a sinner through and through. I mean, through and through. Every fiber of your being, you are sinful. That every thought, every word, every action from birth, some way, somehow, was to bring glory to yourself and not to God. Repentance is seeing that you are utterly and totally lost apart from Christ. It is knowing that you are utterly and totally hopeless apart from God saving you. Repentance is knowing that a holy God is holy and he will judge And therefore, just like Isaiah last week, we'll cry out for mercy. And you see God, and you see His holiness, and you see your sin in light of His holiness, and you say, woe to me, I'm a dead man. I'm a sinful man. I live with a people of sinful lips. Woe to me, I've seen the living, almighty God. That's repentance. That's right turning. It's turning from the way of life that we live apart from Christ. The whole life, running from God, rebelling against God, hating God, and turning to Him. It's imminently reasonable in light of this kingdom transfer of power. It's imminently right. It's turning from the kingdom that is perishing and will be destroyed to the kingdom and king that will reign forever. Forever and ever and ever. Do you see how wicked it is for false teachers and false preachers not to talk about sin and not to talk about Repentance. When Joel Osteen said, I choose to focus on the goodness of God and the power of positive thinking rather than in sin and repentance, what he's saying is I'm going to think about myself. I'm going to think about my own glory. I'm not going to think about you or your need to repent and believe and be saved. And that's why you don't hear it. And you won't hear it. Tickling the ears. At the expense of souls. False teachers successful because we have a truth problem. I mean fundamentally mankind has a radical problem with truth. We don't want to admit that we need to repent. Because as soon as you say I got to repent, you are saying there's something fundamentally wrong with me. I'm flawed. Like the addict. We won't we don't want to admit that we have a problem that really at our core we are sinful. That we sin because we're sinners. That's who we are as people. We don't want to admit that we lie and we cheat and we manipulate and we posture because deep down our hearts are empty and we're fundamentally glory starved. We don't want to admit that. We don't want to admit that we have placed our hope not in God, not in Christ, and not in the cross. We've placed our hope in our marriage, or our children, or our retirement, or our education, or our jobs. We have a problem dealing with the universal fact that we are fall woefully short of God's righteous standard. We don't want to admit this, and therefore, we gather for ourselves people who will lie to us. We pay people to tell us what we want to hear. Tell me I'm good. Tell me I'm beautiful. Tell me I'm already saved. Tell me I don't need to repent. Tell me these things, and we'll pay you more. And we do. I mean, if we're truthful, we don't even do well with simple criticism, right? I mean... Pastor, you're telling me I have to admit I'm a sinner through and through—that every word, every thought, every action from the day that I was born and sown in my mother's womb, I'm a sinner. You're telling me to believe that? I can't even take simple criticism. My wife tells me over the last few weeks, she says, "You know, I've noticed something—a character trait in you—and it's not good." Boy, these are—you love those, don't you? When the conversation starts like that, she's telling me because she loves me. She said, "I realize that when when pressure and time gets on you." When you are, you know, things keep piling up in your life, you become shorter and more, not literally shorter. All of that could be happening too. (laughs) Feels like it. Definitely losing more hair, I know that. You become shorter in your temperament, less patient, less gentle, less kind. How did I respond? It made me irritated. Irritated. I mean, what a terrible response. She's loving me by saying, listen, when things get tough, you kind of get, you know, moody and nasty. And then I get irritable. But she tells I can't even get that criticism. She can't even speak that kind of truth to me. We don't want to admit any of it. We don't want to. Fundamentally, we don't want to. But our Lord speaks the truth to us in love. And he says, the kingdom of righteousness is coming. You are a sinner through and through. Be wise, repent, and be saved rather than destroyed. He speaks the truth to us in such a loving way. He doesn't lie to us. He doesn't tickle our ears. He doesn't say, pay me more, and I'll tell you what you want to hear. He tells us the truth. Simply and completely. Now, many, when we hear this, we hear Jesus boldly declaring the kingdom of righteousness is here and at hand. That there's this shift of power. Many, and I struggled with this before I came to a saving grace. I saw God as this, you know, this monolith of power you know, having absolute authority over life and death. And I thought, that's not fair. That's not right. That he can just, you know, say, this is my judgment, this is my righteousness. Some of us, we hear that and we say, well, what about my Uncle Joe? My Uncle Joe, you all, everybody has an Uncle Joe. And Uncle Joe is such a nice guy. What about Uncle Joe? He doesn't profess Christ. And what about my sister Nancy? I don't have a sister Nancy, but if you do, Nancy, she serves she served people her whole life, "What about her? What about my best friend? What about my coworker? What about my neighbor who watches my dog when I go on vacation? I mean, are you tell me that that person doesn't know Christ as Lord and Savior, that they will be destroyed with Satan and sin and death and the kingdom of darkness, because that's what Christ is saying. That's what God is saying. And the answer is yes. And we say, well, "You know what? If that's the good news, I don't want any part of it. I don't want any part of a good news that talks about people that I love and that I like, these nice people being destroyed. And we say, God, we shake our fists, that's not fair. How dare you? How dare you? But the problem is not God's fairness. The problem is our unwillingness to see and perceive and believe what is true. And that is that God is holy and every single person, without exception, is fallen. What did Paul say in Romans chapter 3? There is no one good, no not one. There is no one righteous. There is no one. No one. The problem is not God's unfairness. It's our inability to deal with truth. We've lost sight that our good old Uncle Joe and our sister Nancy and our co-worker and our neighbor who walks our dog without being charged still fundamentally... Is sinful through and through. Already lost, already separated, already hostile to God, already destined for destruction. The Bible says that we have all willfully and persistently rejected God as Lord, that we have made ourselves captains of our own souls and masters of our own destiny. We've done this. Our Lord's coming, the kingdom coming, is man's only hope to not be utterly destroyed. Worshiping God brings life because you were created to worship God. Worshiping anyone or anything else other than the living God brings death. So if you're not worshiping God the Father through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, you're already dead. You're already, the destruction's already there. It has nothing to do with God's fairness. It has everything to do with our unwillingness to admit the truth. Israel had a similar complaint. And it was expressed here as you heard it in Ezekiel 18. Thinking God unjust and unfair in his judgment. Listen to this. This dialogue is extraordinary and should be so hopeful. I'll read it again. The Lord says, the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways declares the sovereign Lord. And then he says this. He says, repent. There's an exclamation mark in the NIV. It's a good place for it. He says, repent. Turn away from your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. And then he says, why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live repent and live you're already dying you're already destroyed you're already full of sin don't go that direction turn repent turn to me and live this is god's plea repentance is god's gift to fallen man it's his gift it's his gift for man to cry out and turn it's not simply recognizing your sinner and it's not simply being sorrowful over your sin true repentance is a recognition that you are sinful through and through and that you cannot save yourself And apart from Christ saving you, you will be destroyed utterly. It is confessing a life of sin. It is turning to God. It's embracing the gospel of grace. And it is following Christ. And it's fundamental to the message. It's fundamental. What does that mean? That means that if you're sharing any message that does not have repentance in it, it's not the message of Christ. If your message is Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and no repentance, not his message. If your message is, listen, here's a great book on seven ways to live a better life now and there's no repentance, not his message. If you think somehow people becoming good people and moral people that does not include repentance, it's not the message of Christ, it's not the gospel, and it's not what we're supposed to be sharing. So I say this lovely, stop sharing those messages because I hear them. We share those. The church shares those. So, Jesus comes and deals with our time problem. He says, the kingdom of heaven is near. And then he deals with our truth problem. He says, you're a sinner through and through. Repent and live. And then there's one more piece. One more piece to verse 15. He deals with our problem with trust. Look again. He says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and what? And believe the good news. Literally in the Greek, it's trust in the gospel. Trust in the gospel. The time has come, the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe, trust in the gospel. Realize that fundamentally you stand in human history at this time when there's a transfer of power taking place. See that and understand it. Realize that at this very moment, a holy God is alive and real and all-powerful and you are a sinner in need of salvation. And then he says, believe and trust in my ability to save you. Believe and trust in my ability to save you because you cannot save yourself. Do you remember Paul and Silas, Acts chapter 16? Do you remember in in Philippi, they're in jail? Remember, and the prayers are answered and the Holy Spirit comes and shakes and the doors open and all the jail cells are opened up. And the jailer, he looks over and he sees that the the cells are open. He's about to kill himself. Remember, Paul cries out. He says, Paul cries out, he says, don't harm yourself, we're all here. The the jailer thought that they had left, in which case he had been killed, right? And so he's about to commit, take his own life. And Paul says, don't kill yourself, we're still here. The doors are all open, but we haven't gone anywhere. We're still in jail. The Philippian jailer goes to Paul and Silas and he says, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. He said, believe. Same word, trust. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Trust in the gospel of grace. I'm so thankful he didn't say, you know what? Here's a best-selling book by Joel Osteen, Seven Ways to Your Fullest Potential. Here, read this. Can you imagine? I'm so thankful he did not say, you know what? Relax. Jesus loves you. and had a wonderful plan for your life. And he didn't say, worst of all, go to church, put some money in the offering basket, and be better to your wife. He didn't give a gospel of false love. He didn't give a gospel of false success. He didn't give a gospel of morality. He said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. There must be saving power that follows repentance. Repentance does not save you, it puts you in a position to be saved. Merely crying out for mercy does not mean that mercy is then given and you are atoned, your sins atoned for. Remember Isaiah last week? He he cried out, says, woe to me, I'm a dead man. And then what did God do? He sent the seraph with a live coal to touch his lips, to heal him, to cleanse him, to save him. There has to be saving power. We need the saving power. You're feeling not well for weeks. Not well. You're not sleeping well. You're not digesting your food well. There are problems. So you go to the doctor. The doctor runs several tests, extensive tests. After a couple of weeks, they come back and the doctor meets within the office. And the doctor says, well, you know, af- after all these tests, we've determined something. And you say, good, I wanted to know. And they say, you have cancer. And you go, oh. And the doctor says, no, have a nice day. I'm glad that we know that. You wouldn't leave the office, would you? The doctor said, now we know. Good. We know now, no. Now go. What? You'd say, oh, I'm glad that we now know. Now what? Now, heal me. What's, what's the, the regimen of, of medicine? What are we going to do to figure this out? How are you going to How you restore my body to health? You wouldn't be satisfied with that. In fact, you probably wouldn't want to pay the bill. you go to another doctor. Right? You might even you know, file for a malpractice suit. You'd want an answer. How does the person get restored? Christ gives it to us here. The belief, the trust in the gospel of grace is where we receive the healing power of God. The believer says, when the believer repents of their sins and turns to God, he gives them his grace. It's believing that grace is real and that it's powerful and that it can save you and it can restore you and it can heal the cancer of sin. So when he says believe here in this passage... It says, repent and believe the good news. And we saw in Acts chapter 16, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just believing that God is, Christ is real. I mean, the Bible says the demons believe that and they shudder. It's no big deal, right? And the demons aren't going to be saved. Okay, So simply believing that Jesus is real is not believing in Jesus as Lord. Belief means this. Believing in Jesus in the gospel is that you believe that Jesus did everything the Bible said he did that he actually, that the gospel is true. That you believe that Jesus Christ came, the second person of the holy triune God, came in the flesh and he lived the life that you were supposed to live. You. But you didn't live it. He lived it perfectly without sin, without blemish and then he takes that perfect life that we were supposed to live and he gives it to us on the cross. He imparts it to us. The word in theology is imputation. He gives it to us. So he makes you holy as he is holy. You must believe that, indeed, he died the death that you and I were supposed to die. That on the cross, his broken body, his spilled blood, his eternal damnation was our just punishment. You must believe that. That he died the death that we were supposed to die, and then he credits that payment. The punishment cleared. No more debt. No more outstanding debt with the Holy God. Because it's been paid in full by the Savior. Believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in the gospel of grace, is believing that God would, out of his radical love for fallen man, do the absolute unthinkable. And that is send his son to die the unthinkable death. To send his son to a people who hate him, to a people that would reject him, to a people that would punish him, and to a people that would kill him. That he would do that. Believing in the gospel is trusting Imminently trusting that Jesus Christ was ultimately and eternally forsaken by the Father so you could be brought in all the way and never forsaken by the Father. It is believing that. Not just knowing, because if we're raised in the church, we go, yeah, I I know that I've heard that. But believing it in your heart of hearts, in the depth of your soul, that this is real, that this actually happened, that Christ came, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again, and he imparts all that to you. It's trusting the full wrath of Of hell was unleashed on one man to set you free from the full wrath of hell. It's believing that indeed this kingdom that is near and at hand will one day come again in ultimate consummation when Christ comes again and all of his glory and the current king and the current kingdom of darkness will be banished forever, ever in the lake of fire. It's believing that. I mean, really believing it. Not, Oh, that's a nice story. I remember hearing it in Sunday school. I didn't get it then. I don't get it now. It's believing that it's real. That we talk about him coming again and judging the living and the dead and his kingdom reigning forever. We believe that. And we trust in that. And we look forward to that. As we shouldn't. It's believing, as Tim Keller once put, better than I, it's believing that you are more wicked than you ever could imagine, and yet in Christ more love than you ever dared dream. I love that. It's believing that you are more wicked than you ever imagined, and yet in Christ more love than you ever dared dream. This belief, this trust in Christ and in the gospel, it's what gives you the new heart and the new spirit. What did Ezekiel say? Uh, God said in Ezekiel, rid yourself of all the offenses you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. So, how do I do that? How do I get a new heart? What do I have to do? Wizard of Oz and go see the wizard and he gives me a new heart because I don't have a heart? How How do I get a new spirit? How does that work? The kingdom of heaven is near. Repent and believe. It's not complicated, saints. When you come to an understanding of a holy God and who you are before a holy God, and when you come to an understanding of the magnitude of the sacrifice that was made by Christ to bring you in, when this makes its way in and then pushes its way through every fiber of your being, when you truly repent and you truly believe, then by by God's grace and the Holy Spirit, you get a new heart and you get a new spirit. It's called being born again. Oh, there's that phrase. Yeah, we don't like that one either, do we? Being born again by the power of God. And what happens then? Then the gospel transforms your life. It's not the kingdom of heaven is near, repent, believe, and do nothing. It's not repent and believe and then just go on our merry way. It's repent, believe, and be utterly and completely transformed from the inside out. And that means your outside life will change. Not go out and be a better person. Not go out and try to fulfill your potential you know, with seven steps. It's be transformed by the gospel of grace and go out and be changed by it inside out. Religion's outside in, the gospel's inside out. Always has been, always will be. Most false messages and false gospels are outside in. Seeing the kingdom of God is at hand, seeing the darkness of your own heart, repenting and turning from that way of life. And putting your faith, your hope, your ultimate trust in Jesus Christ, in the gospel of grace, will bring real internal transformation. You'll be changed in the image of God. You'll want to love God out of his radical love for you. You'll want to serve God out of his radical sacrificial service for you. You'll want to love and minister God's people. You'll want to get to know brothers and sisters in the Christ with whom you have nothing in common with other than the gospel itself, which is all sufficient for unity in the body of Christ. You'll want to serve. You'll want to use your gifts and talents to minister to people here. You'll want to use those gifts and talents to minister to the lost. You'll want to take the gospel when it transforms you on the inside and share it with those who do not know him. You, a sinner saved by grace, taking the gospel of grace to sinners. You'll want to do that. It won't be this terrible task and it won't be something you you dread. It'll be something you desire. You'll have the desire to guard and protect and lift up the weak and the broken and the vulnerable. You have that desire. You'll, you won't be led away by the inordinate desires of the heart because Christ will be your ultimate. The message of Christ is a message of hope, it's a message of reconciliation. It's a message of restoration for a broken world, for a world that is utterly destroyed as we looked at last week. When you see that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when you repent, turn, and when you believe in the gospel of grace in Jesus Christ, God will change your heart and give you a new spirit and you'll change. People won't recognize you after a while. They'll say, who who is this person? He said, I've been born again. I'm not the same person. I'm new. The psalmist said, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. He'll change your heart. He'll change your desires. He'll change your spirit and you'll live differently. How so? I have a, a, a friend of mine that I coached with, a believer in Christ, who fell off of a, uh, about a third story building working. He's a contractor framing. Now, Midair, he's a big guy, played football, I coached football with him, big guy. Midair, he had the sense, he's, he's heading down for a concrete slab, and he says, if I hit that with my head, I'm dead. So midair, he had the sense to take his huge body, and he turned. And he turned just enough to land on his hip. Ouch. Big ouch. He was in the hospital for six months, shattered everything. I mean, he was a mess. He's a mess. Still, still working through a lot of that stuff. First time I saw him, he says, greatest thing that ever happened to me. What? Best thing that ever happened to me. How? <laughs> man, you just fell three stories and you almost died. He said, I got to tell you, everything's different. He had a near-death experience and everything's different. How so? How so? What did change? He said, I'd always believed in Christ, but I never really believed in Christ. I would always thought the gospel was true, but I never knew how true it really was. I always knew I was a dead man, but I almost became a dead man. And then realized how badly I need to be saved. That near-death experience pushed, pushed him to the edge of what is ultimately real. That the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he got a glimpse. Just like Isaiah, he got a glimpse. And, he went, Whoa. and then, what happened? He came to. He, he was aroused from his spiritual slumber. He saw things clearly. He sees his wife differently. He sees his children differently. He sees his, he sees his suffering differently. Everything is different now. Changed on the inside, now changed on the outside. Repent and believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The false gospels offer temporary relief. They do. People come in, they feel good for a little bit. But their end is destruction. Only the message of the cross, only the message of a crucified risen savior Only the message, only the gospel message of Jesus Christ has the power to save souls from destruction. And if that's true, it's the only message we want to share with lost souls. I know why we share the others. They're easier to share. They're easier to say. And people are more receptive to them. Who doesn't want to hear that Jesus loves me Has a wonderful plan for my life? I want someone to love me, and I have no plan, so that's good. That's easy to say, and it's easy to hear. It's easy to say, here are seven steps. Just work through the steps, and you'll meet your full potential. That's easy, right? It's easy to say, hey, just create a list of what's right and wrong, follow the list, and you'll be saved. That's all easy stuff. But the gospel's brutal because it comes in... And it speaks to our heart of hearts which has fallen. And it says, you cannot save yourself. You're falling through and through. You need a Savior. And that Savior is Christ. That's why we struggle sharing it. We struggle because it's a hard message. But it's the only message that will save. So if we say we really love those people in our mission field we looked at last week. If we say we love our family members. If we say we love our friends and our next door neighbors and our coworkers. If we say we really love them and we share with them anything other than the gospel of grace itself, then we fundamentally are liars. If their end is destruction, you know, it's fascinating. In John chapter, uh, John chapter 3, verse 18, we know 3.16, right? You see it everywhere. For God so loved the world, what? Finish it for me. He gave his only son, right? Whoever believes him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You know what verse 18 says? He says, those who believe in me will not perish. Those who do not believe in me are already dead. They've already perished. They're already condemned. We already stand in that position. It is my prayer over the next several weeks that your calling as a missionary and evangelist to your mission field and this message of the gospel will become imminently clear to you And then by God's grace and strength and power through the Holy Spirit, you will speak the truth in love just like Christ did to us. You'll speak it. You'll speak it. Be praying about it. Be praying for those people. Be praying for that desire. And you know what's going to happen? You're going to have conversations. Just in this last three weeks with three different neighbors I've talked to about the gospel of grace. Yesterday, in my driveway, it was amazing. God went, here, here's the door. Step into it. Talk and open your mouth. Let's pray. So many false messages, Lord. So many false gospels. Your son came with one. He came with a new kingdom. He came with a calling to repent. And he came with a command to believe. This is the message of hope. This is the only message, Lord, that will bring any restoration of any kind to this world of destruction. By your grace and mercy, give us the desire, the courage, the wisdom, and the biblical understanding to not pervert your gospel of truth. And then as a people, Lord, send us out. You called us in with the same message. Send us out with that message that we might see those whom we say we love Come to a saving grace as well. So that your son will be glorified in it all. That his name will be lifted up. For he alone is worthy of all the honor and all the glory and all the power forever and ever and ever. He is our king. It's his kingdom. I praise you for that. I pray that we would see ourselves as citizens of this new kingdom. And we live accordingly in Christ's holy name. Amen.